Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. What you're about to hear is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Toronto 2020. From A to Z, the meaning of everything. Shashi Tharoor and Simon Winchester in conversation with Supriya Nair. We're at the end of uh, 2020. How has this year been for both of you as writers and thinkers? Dr. Tharoor? Well, the writing has been fairly productive, I have to admit, because uh, pre-lockdown, I issued a co-authored book with Samir Saran, which we'd finished last year, called The New World Disorder and the Indian Imperative, which was about the state of the world. Then we uh, you know, barely got into the, into stride of the literary festivals before COVID erupted and the, the lockdown occurred which then gave me a chance in between all the, the, uh, the dramas surrounding trying to repatriate Keralites from foreign countries back to their homes in my state and, and assorted other complications, I did get a chance to finish Thururasaurus, which had been built up over a period of time, but needed, needed a little bit of concluding work. Uh, the publication of which was then delayed because of the lockdown and the hiatus in publishing. Uh, and during that uh, hiatus, I... I was able to uh, delve very deeply into the issues of nationalism and patriotism that have been preoccupying me perhaps for a lifetime. And that's meant that towards the end of the summer, I concluded The Battle of Belonging, which has now been published this month. So I've really had um, a, a fairly productive, in fact, probably my most productive year in terms of <laughs> volumes issued. Uh, in every other respect, of course, uh, the lockdown has not been fun. I'm sure all of us would say that. It's been it's been frustrating in all sorts of ways. It's deprived uh, a constituency MP of, of regular daily contact with people in the constituency. It's created a few health scares and it's disrupted life in all sorts of ways too petty to mention. But it's been it's been nonetheless ex- an extraordinarily unusual year, which we'll all want to forget, but we'll never be able to. Dr. Theroux, you are the sort of contributor that the Oxford English Dictionary would have uh, given it. I mean, the makers of the Oxford English Dictionary would have loved to have 100 years ago or more. I'm um, not so sure about that. <laughs> I actually, I, I, I rather presumptuously suggested that I might have been the coiner of a particular word, which um, I was certainly the first one in my acquaintance to ever use about 50 years ago, free poem. And I got a very sweet letter from the Oxford English Dictionary when I I wrote a semi-tongue-in-cheek column about it. I got a, I got a letter from the Oxford English Dictionary saying, actually, we can find references for this word uh, going back to 1902, and even an Indian reference going back to the early 1950s. That put me in my place, quite quite rightly so. <laughs> uh, but well, that's, we'll, we'll talk more about the Oxford English Dictionary as we go on, and we'll see if we can find... Um, characters uh, who seem familiar to you uh, in that history. But Simon Winchester, you're in Massachusetts. Um, What has 2020 been like for you? Well, extraordinary in a way. I mean, rather like Dr. Tharoor, really rather productive because there's been nothing else to do really other than sit here with my wife and my dog and write. 
So I've produced three books, two on the Mississippi River, one an enormous coffee table book and another on a specific and problematic dam in northern Louisiana. But the main book, uh, which comes out on January the 19th, is a big history of the ownership of land all around the world. So that is called, quite simply, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. And um, so I finished it on schedule, I think, on the 30th of April, and then the rest of the year has been dealing with all the editing and the other issues, which are part of the process that Shashi will know only too well of getting a book onto the market. So yes, it, it's been a productive year. And interestingly, I just wanted to mention my battle to get a word into the OED. I created a word years ago, um, which was the word Drimmons, D-R-I-M-M-E-M-S, which is the grey sludge that you leave on the kitchen floor when you walk in in your Wellington boots on a snowy day and your mother chases you out of the kitchen. So I wrote it in a newspaper column such that, and the OED requires it essentially to be 15 times in publications, but they smelled a rat when it was the same person writing it 15 times and they sort of rejected it wholeheartedly. So Drimmons has never made it and Shashi's word was already in the lexicon anyway, so we both failed. <laughs> um, let me come back to Dr. Tharoor your, and uh, not your most recent book. So for both of you, we will be talking about books in your past, uh, which hopefully is a nice excuse to revisit um, some excellent work and memories. Uh, Therurasaurus is a short, witty compendium of explanations of um, over 50 intimidating English words. It features a you know, sort of cartoon T-Rex on the cover that has Dr. Therur's face on it. Um, <laughs> you, you've, you, you've written many books and you've had a long public career. You've been a diplomat, a novelist, a politician, a popular historian. Um, I've read many of your works and I to me your like your vocabulary hasn't undergone you know a sort of like notable or dramatic transformation um, but at some point you became the public figure with the most daunting English vocabulary in India do you know how did this happen and why well I, I think frankly I, I, I you know I, I, I issued one particular tweet um, <laughs> uh, to lash out at a particularly egregious set of lies broadcast by uh, an awful human being masquerading as a journalist. And I, I, I began with the expression, a farrago of lies, misrepresentations, and outright, sorry, a, a farrago of distortions, misrepresentations, and outright lies, uh, which frankly was the kind of stuff I was tossing out at St. Stephen's College in university debates in the early 70s. And, and no one there would have particularly been surprised to hear me say it. Uh, it's also uh, an expression I'd use at least three times in print since. But for some reason, this captured both the imagination of the Indian uh, public on social media and apparently turned out to be relatively unfamiliar. And so suddenly we had this uh, extraordinary tweet by the OED saying that they would like to understand why a million people in India had suddenly searched for the word Farago and so on. And this became a, 
a, a, a bit of a joke with people opening Twitter accounts, calling themselves Mr. Farago. And for some reason, it was as if I had invented the word, which of course has been around for centuries. But with that, um, I decided to play along with the with the, the, the almost caricatured impression of me as somebody uses words people don't understand. And, and so when we had a political issue, you may remember, uh, in a state that's been in the news again of late, and a, a, a chief minister elected as an ally of ours switched sides and joined the, the, the enemy, as it were, I just tweeted, Snollygoster, a shrewd, unprincipled politician, first usage US 1845, latest usage, you know, India today. And I didn't need to name the fellow, his party or his action. Everyone knew what I was talking about. And Snollygoster then um, again began to be hung around my neck. And after a while, I decided this, this was, I mean, I was being saddled with this, I thought, unnecessary charge of using obscure words. I may as well double down on it. And so when I released the paradoxical prime minister, rather than tweeting that I was writing or had written a new book, I simply said my new my new book, The Paradoxical Prime Minister, is not merely a 500-page exercise in floxy norsi nihilipidification. Now that was obviously tongue-in-cheek, but then unfortunately it resulted in all sorts of poor little four-year-olds around the country being obliged by their, their overzealous parents to recite the word every time uh, you know, on, on the internet. And whenever I came across any young kid, this is what they were supposed to say to me. So the whole thing has become perhaps uh, a joke I need to reel back. So let's take Therurosaurus as the, the capstone of the entire enterprise, and I'll go back to speaking and writing normally again. <laughs> I think one of the lessons from this is uh, that there are varying degrees of normal when it comes to uh, linguistic usage, and that, I'm sorry, and that this normalcy is also, also depends on political convenience. Um, <laughs> Therurosaurus, Therurosaurus doesn't have entirely very much in common with the Oxford English Dictionary. But if you read the meaning of everything, you understand, uh, for one, that the Oxford English Dictionary is, a, you know, I mean, it's a pretty singular sort of achievement. And the second thing you understand is that dictionaries other than the OED can be quite individualistic, um, even eccentric. Uh, your book made me think of Ambrose Bierce's The Devil's Dictionary. Um, but as I was sort of rereading parts of the meaning of everything. I thought of Samuel Johnson and his extraordinary work, which um, uh, Mr. Winchester, would you say that Johnson was kind of the gold standard before, before the OED? Oh, absolutely. I mean, his <clears throat> magisterial book um, was the dictionary. It was produced first edition in 1755. And until the first fascicles of the OED started to come out, in the late 19th century, it, if you ever said, I'll look it up in the dictionary, you looked it up in Johnson. But as you will be only too well aware, I mean, Johnson was riddled with inaccuracies and you know, political commentary. I mean, the famous or infamous one is the one, the definition of oats, um, a grain commonly given to horses, but which in Scotland feeds the people. I mean, that's <laughs> not exactly a, an accurate definition of oats. And he fell into all sorts of traps and, and famously there's the definition of elephant, which I won't go into now because it's a very long but most amusing um, 
definition which illustrates the fact he'd never seen an elephant in his life and he didn't know what they did and believed that a male elephant would mate with a female while she was lying on her back with her legs akimbo and he 20 tons of engorged jumbo bearing down on her clearly true because in those days of course the channel tunnel not being open there were no elephants wandering around in england in 1755 but for all its faults it's a stunningly good book and i have a copy which interestingly enough was um, a facsimile edition printed in beirut of all places oh. in the 1980s during oh, during the civil war incidentally i wanted to revert to what shashi said about the parliamentary language and faragos and lies and so forth as you well know in british parliament of course you cannot call someone a liar mm. and so instead you're allowed to use the phrase he was guilty of a terminological inexactitude, inexactitude. which is a perfect um, synonym not that there are many synonyms in the english language for liar now of course with trump in office for another 50 odd days uh, we use that word rather freely but still not in england not in the mother well, of falsehood i think was probably a simpler equivalent but i think churchill came up with terminological inexactitude he did indeed yes right <laughs> Uh, what what counts as parliamentary language also changes depending on the country you're in and in the US where they have neither a parliament nor kind of the restrictions on free speech that we have in older democracies for some reason uh, I suppose you know languages can be used afresh and anew um, in exciting ways uh, but you know Supya, your question to Simon I think in all fairness Simon's own book suggests that Webster had become mm. the gold standard. A gold standard. That's right. Beyond Johnson. Uh, yes. Uh, and and the it was about Webster, Webster that right? provoked the OED, didn't it? Much more than Johnson. Simon? Yes. I mean, Webster contains to this day more words than the OED does. I mean, the OED, the first edition, what was it? 414,000 words. Webster, about half a million. Uh, but didn't, of course, do what the OED uniquely does, which is to contain a biography of every word. Webster was quite simply, you know, cat, a feline animal that purrs and all the rest of it. But in the OED, of course, you have a long, long um, biographical, historical um, entry and the, what's crucial, the indication of how the word cat or dog or whatever changed over the years. And that's the central value of the OED and makes it unique mm. and makes it unique makes it uniquely scholarly i think uh, particularly in india i don't know if this is true in the um, in parts of the uk when we think of ourselves as referring to the oxford dictionary the vast majority of us in fact refer to the new oxford dictionary which isn't a historical dictionary um or the concise one which is you know which you can kind of throw into your bag uh but uh, again what counts as a gold standard for dictionaries changes depending on what what kind of work you want to use it for. And um, the Webster serves one purpose. Chambers, which kind of got a foot in the door before the Oxford English Dictionary had finished publishing, I think was also another sort of single volume reference, wasn't it? So it, <coughs> so it has no competitors. Chambers to me is, is a gold standard for another reason in that it includes so many weird and wonderful words and includes lexical jokes very subtle one i mean the famous one there in chambers 20th century dictionary is um 
the definition of eclair, the cake. Eclair, as you probably know, is means it's a French word, which means lightning. And its definition in chambers, not in the august OED, is a cake long in dimension, but short in duration, which I think is <laughs> wonderful. Very charming. And my, you may be wanting to ask us as a sort of, as a flourish at the end of this conversation, which is our favorite word. Well, I was looking up my favorite in the OED. It appears or first appeared for me anyway, in chambers, and that is the word, and I wonder if it's in Thururosaurus, I've only got as far as K, I'm afraid. And this is the word Malmarocking. Malmarocking was a word, M-A-L-L-E-M-A-R-O-K-I-N-G, which is the carousing of drunken seamen on ice-bound Greenland whaling ships. <laughs> it That's very, very precise. Yes, but the interesting thing about this was that in 1980, the Chambers brought out a second edition and they changed the definition of Malmarocking ever so slightly. It was the carousing of drunken seamen in icebound Greenland whaling ships. It became, in the new edition, the carousing of drunken seamen in icebound whaling ships, leaving out the word Greenland. And this mm. allowed an editor at The Guardian, I was working for at the time, to write a tongue-in-cheek, ferocious Saturday morning editorial saying that the foul practice of Malmarocking appears to have unleashed itself from its native Greenland and is now spreading around the world, it must be stopped immediately. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great candidate for favorite word. If anyone had asked me for one, I would just have said cake. Um, <laughs> uh, I, so you, two of your books, The Meaning of Everything and an earlier book, The Professor and the Madman, uh, are about you know, the histories of this really enormous singular intellectual endeavor, which is also a very Victorian one, as, as you tell us. Um, could you perhaps briefly, for those who are not familiar with this his history, tell us about some of the conditions that made it thinkable? I mean, how could these people take on an adventure of this size? Well, what basically, and really, <coughs> I'll be as brief as I can, <coughs> the Philological Society started in London in the middle of the 19th century, people that loved words. I mean, Shashi is a classic philologist. You love words, you love the feel, the slipperiness of them and beautiful things. But they decided that, um, let us collect words that don't appear in any dictionary. Don't appear in Johnson, don't appear in the early versions of um, Webster that they were beginning to see. And they set up something called the Unregistered Words Committee. And on a night, I think it was the 5th of November, 1855, I think, they had a meeting of the Philological Society in London on a foggy night. And at the last minute, they decided not to give a disquisition on what unregistered words they had found that month or that year or that week, but instead, quote, on some deficiencies in our English dictionaries. And this was the Bishop of Westminster, a man called Shenevix Trench, who said that our dictionaries simply aren't good enough. We have two ladies, well, I say ladies and gentlemen, it was regrettably only gentlemen in the audience. We have to gird our loins and produce a dictionary which has every single word in it in the English language. And to do that, we'll have to trawl through every piece of literature, every magazine, every newspaper, every piece of poetry that's ever been written in the English language. <clears throat> and to show that how the meanings of these 
various words had or might have changed over the centuries. Um, and of course, everyone muttered, oh, it's a completely impossible thing to do. But then he said, no, I've come up with a plan. We're going to, and he didn't use the word, we're going to crowdsource it. We're going to get thousands of volunteers in every English-speaking country on the planet from North America and obviously England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, or Ireland in those days, India, South Africa, wherever, to write in with quotations. And so they did. And it started in a faltering way, as you might imagine, and the first editor died after about a year. And the second editor turned out to be a charlatan and a rogue, most amusing man, more interested in picking up girls than actually dealing with lexicography. And then finally, James Murray. By this time, you've got millions of these slips with all the same five by seven, with the head word so-called at the top left, and then the illustrative quotation, and then the source of that. And they were put in these pigeonholes, the originals still existing in a museum in Oxford. Um, and from these slips, then these men, these not the six serving men that Johnson had employed in the 1740s, but something like 20 men working in a tin shed in the back of a garden in North Oxford, took until 1928 to produce what was by then the catalogue of every word in the language. Mind you, during those 50 years, an awful lot of new words had been created and some words had been missed out. So they created a supplement, which was published in 1933. And then again, they had to redo it in the 1980s with, this is appropriate that we're talking about it in Canada because it was in Waterloo in Ontario that um, using massive IBM computers, they reorganized it and re-alphabetized everything and brought out the second edition. And now they're working on the third. So that's it very briefly, but the third will be ready in 2037, we hope. And I hope fervently in print, not just online. <laughs> I hope so too. They've been working on it since 2000. And your books really do show us how the meaning of everything in particular, how this project kind of took the nation along with it, the English speaking nation along with it. And I can't imagine another project in a country today where to, a book project to which a prime minister would show up to the celebratory dinner, unless the prime minister had written a book himself or herself. <laughs> um, I don't know uh, if you had a, you know, a, a parliamentary dinner, a dinner for your parliamentary colleagues, Dr. Tharoor, if uh, our prime minister would show up to celebrate a book that features words like cacistocracy and, <laughs> uh, and hyperbly and yogi, among other things. Um, but did you think of Thururosaurus as something that was kind of in defiance of, of the political era that we're living through? You know, only partly, because, you know, there was a temptation to almost relate every single word to contemporary Indian affairs and Indian politics. But I thought that might defeat the spirit of the enterprise, which is very much to try and make uh, an odd mixture of words, uh, some fairly familiar, some less so, um, more accessible to a larger number of people. And so um, I decided that I would, I would um, limit myself to, to the, only those words where the political usages were irresistible or very obvious. Um, <laughs> uh, otherwise, uh, some of my comments are just more comments about society and, and, and you know, Indian people one knows, uh, valetudinarian, uh, for example, is one where uh, I actually had a very specific lady in mind whom I've described in, in, in describing the word. 
and um, and certainly when something like cacistocracy comes up, of course one has to talk about very specific cacistocracies that have come into existence in the world today, um, whether Mr. Trump's, um, which has now been defenestrated, to use another one of my favorite words, or, or Mr. Modi's, which has not been. Which remains to be defenestrated. Um, I have, I, I, I had a question formulated about this, but since we're out of, almost out of time, uh, Mr. Winchester, I'm just going to ask you to introduce your audience to the extraordinary Fitz Edward Hall. You wrote a book about a guy who was kind of like him, who was William Chester Minor, uh, in your fantastic The Professor and the Madman, of which he is one of the protagonists. Um, but I wanted you to talk about Fitz Edward Hall a little bit because he has a connection to India. Dr. Tharoor, do you know about this person, Fitz Edward Hall? Perhaps not. Can you hear me, Mr. Winchester? Yes, I can hear you very well. Yes. Fitz Edward Hall was an American, as far as I recall. I mean, I wrote yes. the book now, of course, 20 yes. odd years ago. Shipwrecked, I believe, in um, Calcutta or somewhere in Bengal, made his way up to a college in Varanasi, I think, or yes. Lucknow, Lucknow, and taught Sanskrit, I believe, and became mm. a distinguished um, teacher of Sanskrit for many years, but then had a fearsome row with a German Sanskrit professor such that he left India in a huff and came back to a cottage in Norfolk from which he never emerged, I think, for the rest of his life, um, but sent thousands upon thousands of quotations to James Murray at uh, 71 Banbury Road, Oxford, um, to assist with the making of the dictionary. But yes, I mean, very intimate connection uh, with India. So I don't know how well Fitz Edward Hall is known. I always thought his was a name of a college rather than a person, but in fact, <laughs> it is a human and, being. And right, I think he's not at all known in India. Is he not? Um, no, and the other, the German, a German Sanskritist, if not the German Sanskritist we just talked about, is better known, which is Max Müller, who also Max has a Müller. connection. I think the fellow that the he had the row with was called Goldstucker. Um, right. but my memory is a little hazy, but yes, certainly a shipwreck, which is a spectacular way to enter India. Don't have to endure <laughs> the formalities of Indian right. customs immigration. And so many of the men you write about uh, led these extraordinary lives, um, and I, you know, it's clearly sort of the it was it was that moment in world history that made their lives possible, but also this extraordinary intellectual engagement and. Um, that story led me to want to ask both of you about uh, whether you can see the world as it is today in 2020, harboring an intellectual project of that sort of extraordinary scale and scope and sense of public service. Um, I tried to think of it and Wikipedia was the closest I could come, I could come to it. But do you think some, uh, I mean, do you think it's possible? Who are you wanting to reply to that first? You are on my screen, so okay, we'll I'm go on with you, Mr. Winchester. Well, Thank you. Okay, I'm very interested to hear what Shashi's got to say about this because I'm planning a book now on the history of the dissemination of knowledge. Its working title is Knowing What We Know, a history of the spreading of knowledge and the threat to the loss of wisdom. Because I'm afraid that with Google specifically, Wikipedia slightly more generally, 
that knowledge is being devalued because it's always there. It's just a touch of a button. Anything we want to find out, we can. It means we don't need to know anything. So knowledge is vanishing. And with knowledge, I fear that there's a loss of these towering figures in history who are, the word for them generally is polymaths. Are there any polymaths left? I've always thought ever since listening um, uh, to Shashi Thurua in, in Jaipur two years ago, that here's an example of a man who knows such a lot about so many things that he could rightly be described as polymathic. But there are very, very few such people. And with such few people, intellectual leaders, public intellectuals, I do fear there's a possibility of the loss of wisdom because I think the world needs to be nudged in certain directions by people, men and women, who are phenomenally wise and all-knowing. And so this is a subject which is dear to my heart. The book hasn't been accepted yet. The proposal only went out a few days ago. Crossing my fingers that my publishers, who I think are the same as uh, Shashi's publishers, um, will accept it because it's a field that I feel quite strongly about. The disdain for knowledge, the endless flow of information, and the lack of wisdom. Mm. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Simon's book, I have to say. It'll be fascinating as an idea to explore. I don't share his pessimism, partially because I've, I've realized with some cynicism, perhaps, that, that the, the, you know, the, it was always a minority uh, that actually possessed the kind of knowledge we celebrate. Even the, the, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, was a project of a, of a very uh, self-assured, very learned, very well-educated well, well class but what percentage of even the British population um, was that project catering to? And, and which of those 150 people at the dinner the Prime Minister attended, could there have been anybody who we would not describe even in those days, and certainly today, as a member of an elite? And for that reason, I would say that what has happened with the internet has been a democratization of access to knowledge that can't be a bad thing. I share with Simon, um, uh, the concern that access also devalues something. If, you know, all familiarity breeds contempt. If you know that you don't really need to know anything because the information that you need, you can look up at two clicks of a mouse, uh, perhaps th that, that knowledge itself will hold less value for you. Uh, and that is something we'll certainly have to watch out for. But I think uh, the survival of expertise in the world into our times suggests that there is still a lot of respect for those who know more about something than, um, than most of us will know about anything. I mean, I, you're very generous to me and I, I, I'm, I'm touched by your kindness, but I would, would not presume to, to imply that I know quite so much. I know a little bit about a lot of things, but a little bit enough to, to savor uh, the pleasures of that subject that I know a little bit about and to have the capacity to delve into it in greater detail and greater depth if and when I need to. But since all of us are limited by God's 24 hours, uh, we won't always have a chance to know to more than skim the surface of any subject. But to that degree, all of us um, are, are perhaps handicapped. Um, but I would still argue that um, knowledge in depth will still be the possession of experts, whether academic scholars, people who really go in in some detail into, into, into a subject. Information, on the other hand, will be accessible to anybody with access to a phone and the internet. Wisdom, to my mind, often comes uh, from the experience of amassing 
little bits of knowledge and lots of information and knowing how to judge them, sift them, and put them together. Uh, I, I don't equate wisdom with expertise. So this distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom, which is, of course, a fairly banal distinction, might well be one that, that Simon will illuminate for all of us when he writes about how knowledge spread around the world. I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, I hope yes, so. And and I, I, I just wanted to remind you of the, uh, the single question in the Confucian examinations in China in the sixth and seventh century. There was just one question on the paper. Write down everything you know. <laughs> this must have been a very long paper for some of us. Well, I was going to say, in my case, it'd be very short. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. Surely, the, surely the, the top ranked guy wrote nothing or something suitably humble and impressed yes. the emperor. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I've been told we're out of time. So even though neither of you objectively answered the last question I had for you, I must thank you for truly delightful and thoughtful answers and for this discussion, which I've enjoyed very, very much. Congratulations and all the very best on your forthcoming works. Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Lon Chora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jaipur Bites wherever you're listening to this. Ah, ah, ah.